My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Stanley Andres. He is the author of From Prison Cells to PhD. He is an endocrinologist, scientist, and assistant professor at Howard University uh, College of Medicine, researching type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. Dr. Andres holds a visiting professorship at Georgetown University Medical Center and held an adjunct professorship at Johns Hopkins Medicine after uh, after completing his postdoctoral training. Dr. Andres completed his PhD at St. Louis University and his MBA and bachelor's degree at Lindenwood University. Um, that's where he played three years of Division II collegiate football. Uh, his service commitments include executive director and founder of From Prison Cells to PhD, a board member on the formerly incarcerated College Graduates Network, past president of the Johns Hopkins Postdoctoral Association, founder of the Diversity Postdoctoral Alliance, uh, a member on several local and national committees aimed at community outreach. He is a youth mentor motivational speaker and community activist. So, <laughs> uh, Dr. Andres, thank you very much for, for coming on yeah. and, and having this conversation with me. As we as we talk today, it's uh, November 8th, so election day, and I, I know Big that you're, uh, you're quite busy today, so thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk with me, and um, sure. really been looking forward to digging in and and getting to getting to hear all about your story, man. This is really cool. So thanks. Yeah, no, thank thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and um, definitely looking forward to jumping into our conversation, uh, connecting with your audience, and you know, sharing a little bit on the work that I do within uh, the many hats that I wear. And we were talking earlier. Your your book released last year, uh, last yes. August. So it's it's available really anywhere people want to get it. Um, but you do have a, a website, and I will have that in the show notes so people can, uh, you know, link up with you, follow you on social media, and and see all the great things that you're doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, at Prison to Pro uh, is our organizational had uh you know tagline or uh feed and at prof underscore andres is is mine so that professor andres um yeah i mean i'm i'm open to start wherever you would like in the conversation i could kind of give uh some some things from the beginning we could jump into the work wherever you want to start i'm 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 open to it all right well uh what i what i always do is um, ask a few questions about where you were born and raised and, and what life was like when you were growing up. So I, I know yeah. from reading a little bit about you that you 
you grew up in St. Louis in the St. Louis area. So, uh, yeah. you know, is that where you were born? Yeah. So, uh, I was, I was born in St. Louis, uh, an area called U city, um, which was most known for the, from the early two thousands, uh, rapper Nelly. Uh, my, my sisters actually went to, to school with, with Nelly, um, at university city or U city. Um, and, um, we were in U city, which was, you know, had a lot of its challenges. Um, and, you know, we were in a, I uh, am the youngest of, of five. Uh, my family are Haitian immigrants. Um, my family actually bounced around the U.S. from uh, Miami to New York to Detroit um, before, you know, landing in St. Louis and mostly just for challenges of uh, money and, you know, trying to find a place to really settle in where there's a lot of, there was, you know, it was a time in the country where there was a lot of challenges particularly with Haitian uh, immigrants and refugees. So um, it was it was quite a challenge. And I talk about that in my book on what it is to be an immigrant, any, any type of immigrant family in our country and what the history of that kind of looks like, but particularly uh, a Caribbean or Haitian immigrant in that particular time, there was a, a viewpoint of what people from that part of the world was. And Haiti, of course, being one of the, uh, you know, still one of the poorest countries in the world. And all the challenges it faced. So I talk about that. And that was a very big part of my upbringing. I was raised very much this Haitian immigrant. Um, but, you know, in, in, in U City, our home was a um, one bedroom for the five kids and my and my uh, parents. And I, I, you know, can remember quite vividly sleeping in the basement with my, you know, two, two other brothers in this tiny bed. And just, it was challenging, but I, you know, I never, and I talk about it in the book, I didn't, I didn't look at it as like, um, uh, like I didn't see those challenges as I was tiny, you know, so I didn't, I didn't understand that, that we were struggling financially or anything like that. It was really happy times like, that I could recall. Um, and then we moved to an area in St. Louis called uh, the Ferguson Florissant area, which of course, everybody knows uh, quite a bit about that because of the, you know, uh, the death of Mike Brown and all the things that happened after that. Um, and then, so, you know, I moved into that area and it was, you know, a move up from where we were at in U City. Um, and what I can recall about that is things that I now know this, that, you know, what's called uh, the over-policing and the excessive use of force and the information that came out from the uh, Department of Justice report after all the things that happened in Ferguson, uh, that was just kind of life to me. It was a, it's an all black area uh, in the North St. Louis region. And, um, you know, there was always police around. Like I can recall it as early as eight years old, having cops pull a gun out on me. And, you know, I can recall just running from the cops and knowing that, you know, we, the cops didn't like us. We didn't like the cops. And, um, it was this idea that they weren't there to help us. And there was this idea that they saw us as bad people. And so you grow up and you, you know, you're eight years old, you don't, you know, the way that you process that, the way that I processed that was, you know, there's a lot of cops around here because there's a lot of criminals and bad people. Like we're getting guns pulled on us because we're doing bad and we're bad people. Um, and so, you know, I get a little bit older and I, you know, get into junior high and high school. Uh, and by that time, 
Um, you know, I, I was arrested for the first time at 14 years old. I was had already started selling drugs before I was even a teenager. And so, you know, I moved into the criminal legal system very young. But even, even before that, um, I can recall like in uh, junior high and probably even in, in uh, elementary school, just always being in detention and suspension. And by the time I was in high school, I was threatened to be kicked out and expelled on numerous occasions. What, what saved me was that I was a three-sport athlete and the disciplinary principal was actually my track coach. Now, and, and I was really just a track star. I was really fast. And um, so that was like my saving grace. Had I not had that, I would have definitely been kicked out of school. Like many of the people that I had already started hanging out with, a lot of people I was hanging out with were uh, high school dropouts and, you know, got into selling drugs. And they're in this community that already is seen as people who are bad, drug dealers, criminals. Um, but as a, you know, what I was getting at is as, as, a, as a young kid, what you, from the time that you, you have, you know, police presence and guns being pulled at you, you're just a little baby. Um, it just built the sense that, well, this is the life that I'm supposed to be living. And, you know, my thought, my, the people in school, I had my athletic talents being nurtured, but my intellectual potential really wasn't being nurtured. And, um, uh, more so the teachers in my life really were just like, you're from that area. Like, that's where all, you know, there's a lot of cops in that area, isn't it? And isn't there a lot of crime that goes on? And and so before I even got entered into the legal system officially at 14 in juvenile, I was already seen as a bad person and criminal. And I and I already started to embody that um, and was already kind of living up to this idea of who I was supposed to be. And in my neighborhood, we actually, it was one of the top neighborhoods and areas that produced, uh, you know, we we produced, uh, you know, some some NFL players and NBA players that are that are in the league now. Actually, uh, well, you know, actually probably finished up, <laughs> but um, you know, it was it was like making making it in the streets or you make it in as a pro athlete, and that those were kind of the options. And I took upon myself to really accelerate put on the push on the gas in those two directions and you know that led to me getting arrested at that you know and moving into the juvenile system and then just um, it really snowballed um, from from there when you graduated high school did um uh, you know uh, knowing that you competed in collegiate football uh did you have any scholarships yeah so I um I got a scholarship, and as I was mentioning, I was uh, kind of I was a track star. I went to state and track, and um, I ended up getting a football scholarship to play at this school called Lindenwood. And um, by by that time, by the time I entered in college, I was just kind of to my neck in um, just problems and legal trouble and psychological and emotional crises and. Um, I was really kind of in too deep to turn around. Um, so outwardly, I had, uh, you know, the this scholarship and it looked like I had made it out of this area, you know, with the the option that you either make it in the streets or you make it in, in sports. And it looks like it had looked like I made it out um, and was going in this direction and at least was going to get a college degree. 
Um, but I was already so deeply entrenched. Um, you know, I, I was mentioning right before we jumped on, um, you know, this individual um, that was one of my biggest, uh, like the, the, the drug dealer that really introduced me into like this crazy level of selling drugs and, and, and moving a lot of weight. And, um, he was this high school dropout. Um, and, you know, he was just, uh, you know, he, he was just had just, you know, be before I met him, I had been, you know, smoking a little weed, selling a couple of bags to make up for smoking a little weed. Um, and then when I met him, it was just like, he just was throwing pounds, dozens of pounds of weed my way and 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 Coke and pills and just always carried around a gun on him and, and used kind of this violence as this way of like uh, making his, his self known. And I, I got entangled with, with him um, and, you know, that just led down this path of making a lot of money, but then just getting involved in just some very dangerous activity that I, um, by the time I made it into college, I was unable to really, I was already like thinking like, man, this is, this is crazy. Like, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to be doing this, but I was too deeply entangled, um, in, in, in selling drugs at that time. I want to say it was earlier this year, I, I published an episode where I interviewed, um, <clears throat> his name is Steve-O. He's a, he's a local firefighter, a uh, guy that I worked with for, for a number of years. He's a great guy, you know, and, uh, he, his family is Haitian immigrants and, and there were, you know, I, I know that time frame that you're talking about where there was a, a lot of immigrants from Haiti. Um, yeah. some of them good and, and some of them, you know, they, they were responsible for a lot of crime and, uh, but, but talking with Steve-O, he, uh, I mean, that's what you're saying. I mean, that was the environment that he grew up in. That was what he knew. He used football to get out of there and, I mean, he played collegiate football. It looked like he was going to get a contract in the NFL, and that didn't work out. So uh, he came back and became a firefighter. And for the longest yeah. time, he was at the fire station that served that area that he grew up wow. in. Um, and from working there myself, it's a really rough area. Um, yeah. It's a, this one neighborhood. There's one entrance in. And that's the way you come and go. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and it looked like a war zone. Um, it, it was, it was a rough area and we called it little Mogadishu. Yeah. And I think the, uh, the, the locals that lived there. Um, so there's another area that uh, is referred to as Chapa city uh, because of all the police helicopters. And yeah, I don't, I mean, he talks about his experience there and, you know, what you're saying is, is that those were the two options. Either you get out by playing football or you, you become a drug dealer or you make your yeah. living through crime. And uh, I mean, when that's what you know, 
or if that's what's available to you, I mean, of course. Right. You got to survive. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, it, it definitely, um, you know, that, that, and uh, I, I always want to just throw in there that, you know, despite, you know, I, I don't ever want to paint the picture because I've, I've had people as I share, share my story, um, you know, some people uh, get upset that, you know, that to say that you still had your own, uh, you know, I, I made those decisions, right, is, is, is what I'm getting at. So this is not to take away any responsibility or accountability on me that I, I did make those decisions because there's people that I grew up with that obviously, you know, didn't go to prison and, and didn't make those decisions I made. So I made those decisions, but those, you know, there are those factors that are real factors that, you know, obviously were a, a, a big heavy fact uh, reason that people like myself end up going to prison. These, you know, what, what I've explained without using the word yet is, is the school to prison pipeline. So the school to prison pipeline is, is, is like a machine in this particular area of the country, like St. Louis in this particular area of St. Louis, North St. Louis. Um, you know, there are people that don't go to prison, but there are a lot of people that end up going to prison. And, you know, it's this machine of this is the viewpoint. These are the options that are, uh, uh, you know, are the most apparent options present to the individuals. Now, people make their choices, but when you're presented, when that's what you're primarily presented with, you know, it's hard as a kid to really think outside of that. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, I, I made those choices and I continue to make those choices. And then um, even into, you know, moving into college, I, um, you know, eventually uh, ended up getting two additional felony charges, um, uh, you know, and that that led to me sitting in front of a judge facing 20 years to life in prison for drug trafficking charges um, and eventually getting sentenced to 10 years in prison um, as a prior and persistent career criminal. Um, and, you know, in, in that process, I can, you know, recall the prosecutor was actually pushing for 20 to life because she felt that I had no hope for changing um, the decisions that I had been making up until that time and thought that she felt that I was going to be part of this revolving door of incarceration, as so many are that, you know, look like me, that come from the places and areas that I come from. Um, so, you know, it wasn't too much of this wild crystal ball idea that that she thought that I was going to be trapped in this revolving door. Um, you know, fortunately for me, uh, fast forward some time, I did my time. Um, as you said in the beginning, I'm now Dr. Stan Andres, an endocrinologist, scientist, professor at Howard University College of Medicine, also at Johns Hopkins, Georgetown, Imperial. Uh, so I, I did live up to uh, the expectations of the, the, the that prosecutor. Um, but you know what what's what's saddening is that you know so many people that are in my situation do fall into exactly what this prosecutor kind of had prophesized um and, and for me like having been through the things that I went through growing up in in St. Louis and then going into prison and then the things that happened in prison and making it out of prison and being where I am now um, that was being able to navigate through those different 
hoops, hurdles, challenges. Uh, you know, it was, you know, I couldn't see myself not having reaching, you know, not reaching back and trying to help the next person get through those challenges. Um, and that, that was kind of the whole way. And, and I can certainly fill in uh, some of the blank, but, you know, just to jump to the part of, um, you know, I eventually started this organization, uh, which is from Prison Cells of PhD. It shares the same name as the book. Um, and the, the, you know, it, the name is kind of this uh, literal journey that I took, uh, but it's, it's more of this metaphor uh, of going from a place of desolate despair and hopelessness to a feeling, to, to a place of, you know, self-value, self-worth, and, and feeling like, you know, you have purpose. Um, and, and for me, that started in, in this, you know, in my prison cell. Um, when I, when I first got into prison, I was very much, you know, I was this, I was in my early twenties and, um, I just had this prosecutor painting this picture of me as this like monster, you know, like this, oh my goodness, you know, the biggest drug dealer to ever hit the area and, you know, dangerous carries guns and has this amount of money on them. This is not some small, uh, you know, neighborhood high school drug dealer. This is a very dangerous person. Um, so, you know, she, you know, all that most very much was kind of true. Did you want, and, did you have and, something? And, yeah. And you were hiding out as a football player, huh? <laughs> yeah. The, and so actually, you know, what was, what was like, and, and what really actually hit me uh, as a, as a big dagger, cause I, I believed it. Um, so, you know, that was the, that was the argument that we were presenting that, um, you know, this, this is a college kid, like he has potential, like we need to, we should show some mercy and like, just give him some time. And we think, you know, he's gonna like, he's gonna be okay. And her idea was that this is his third, every one of his, you know, he had his first felony as a, as an, as a teenager at 14. And every subsequent felony has been this bigger thing. And she was, her argument was, you know, if we let him go this time, you know, this next one, what do you think is going to be? This is, you know, don't get it fooled. What's, what's worse than a street thug? This is her, this is her exact words, an educated street thug. So she, she actually flipped the script on saying it's, it's actually bad that he is, you know, that he's in college and, you know, he's still the street thug and, you know, that's all he'll ever be. And, you know, I, I was like, I, I thought about that and, you know, I went into prison very much like, like, she's, she's right. Like, I'm just this fucking terrible person. Like, I, like, what is wrong with me? I, I have something like seriously psychologically wrong with me to be involved in this type of activity in which a lot of what she was saying was true and like, you know, carrying guns and being involved in these. So I was, I was just thinking to myself, like, she's absolutely correct. And so I went in, like, I am going to be in this revolving door of incarceration. So how do I become a better criminal? And that was a lot of, of my early time incarcerated. And I, I fell into kind of some of the criminal thinking and institutionalized thinking of taking part in some of the things inside prison. Um, I was fortunate enough to have this mentor step into my life that, you know, saw this different trajectory and, you know, saw me, saw a potential that I hadn't really tapped into and believed in or saw in myself. 
Um, and, and that tied with uh, me losing my father, father to type two diabetes over the course of about two years. Um, that led me into this place of like deep uh, emotional despair and, and depression. And, and there was some other things going on in my life and, and so finding. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you a question. Were you incarcerated when your father passed away? So when my father was, uh, so my, my, my father went through about two years of um, complications and uh, he had a series of heart attacks that uh, he was, um, he didn't, he, he actually, uh, it, it actually, I, I should, what I, what I should, what I should actually say is that um, that's a part that, uh, that I would prefer folks to kind of read in the book. So it was this, it, it was, it was part of this epiphany moment um, that I think is just, uh, you know, better suited for folks to, you know, to, to get out of the book. But in, in essence, it was this process of, um, you know, him going in and out of the hospital while I was incarcerated um, and having these, a, a series of, of heart attacks and surgeries where um, that, you know, it was, it was clear that that was the path that he was going on that led to me wanting to change my life because I, I got to this point that, you know, um, my, my father used to tell me this phrase that is, is the, is the title, uh, the subtitle of the book. Um, it is never too late to do good. Uh, and, and that, that is actually, you know, my family and I, we spoke Creole growing up. Um, and that was, you know, the first language I learned in, in the household. And so, you know, he, he actually spoke mostly Creole to me and the phrase is actually, and he would just say this to me a lot over the course when I was a teenager and selling drugs and getting deeper and deeper into the criminal legal system. And um, before I went away, I was, uh, I actually hadn't talked to him for some time. Um, and we kind of fell off for reasons of one of the, uh, like just getting deeper involved in selling drugs in the criminal legal system. So I, you know, I had lost contact with them. And then, you know, he went through this spell of sickness and hospitalization. And that, that was actually like my epiphany moment. A lot, a lot of people ask like, why did I decide to go through this change? And that was, that was a big part of it is, you know, those words just lingering, you know, his, his idea of it is never too late to do good. Um, and the, the reason that I chose that as the subtitle of the book is just such an appropriate uh, concept for the criminal legal system where, you know, in our conversation earlier today, or, you know, just now earlier in this conversation, um, as you were talking about, you know, some of the Haitian, act, you know, the activities that some of the people were doing in the, in the area, um, you know, and you're like, some of them truly were doing some pretty scary, criminal, dangerous things. And, and his phrase is that it's never too late. You know, it's never too late to do good. It was, the real meaning of it was, you know, it's never the the meaning in its Creole sense was it is never too late to reach your full potential and it's and it's never too late to do the right thing. And it was this idea that he believed that, you know, I can see and I know and I believe 
that you have the ability to change and that you have the ability to bring value into this world, I'm just waiting for you to see it. And, um, and I think that, and I believe that you will get there. You know, our, our system doesn't believe that. That's why we sentence people to such long sentences. And that's why we sentence people to life and why we sentence people to death is because we don't believe that people can change. We're, we sentence, you know, drug dealers to 20, 30 years. Um, and that's saying that we don't believe in your capacity to change and, and see the world differently. Um, and it was just that hitting me as I was losing him um, that really helped me, you know, reach this place of like, I need to change my life. And, um, you know, that, that was, a, that was a big part of it. And who was your mentor? Was it another inmate? No. So, um, I was in school before I, uh, you know, before I went off to, and, and was sentenced to prison. Um, and, and, and interestingly, uh, I had, um, actually just graduated college. Uh, and then about two weeks later, as all my friends were still partying from, you know, graduating school, I was sitting in that courtroom looking at 20 years to life and then, and then getting sentenced to prison. Um, uh, but I had, you know, I actually met this uh, professor um, and he, he ended up writing uh, a letter, uh, a recommendation letter for me to get into a fellowship and I, it said a bunch of good things about me and talked about, you know, my, my intellectual capacity. And so I slipped this, you know, my, my lawyer, when I was being sentenced, I had all these bad things against me. So he, you know, he wanted to build a pile of good things. And so I slipped it into my pile of good things. And the prosecutor uh, thought it was a fake letter because it wasn't addressed to the court. I was too ashamed and just really thought that, you know, if I asked him to write a letter, that he would never write one or, you know, and, and so I, I slipped this letter and they contact him and, uh, you know, she asked, you know, do you know this guy, Stan Andres, he's this criminal, he's facing 20 years to life in prison. And he was like, what? Like Stan? <laughs> what? And then, so he calls me into his office and this is before I went away to prison. Um, and I told him about everything. I thought he was going to just throw me away and dismiss me like everyone else, but he just, he ended up testifying in court and, 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 you know, continuing to stay in contact with me. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and I talk about this quite a bit, the importance of like your experience and what you're giving back to your community. Now it's directly linked to your experiences and, and crashing and burning. And like, you know, that there is, a, a way out and you you've shown it you're the example and so many times and this is something that I, I think a lot of people don't recognize or uh, you know allow themselves to see is that you know in in areas you know in uh you know urban areas where there is uh uh, a you know a high incidence of crime and yeah. poverty and all that stuff and and you know like you were talking about it being predominantly uh black and the white faces that you see are the ones that are trying to catch you doing something yeah you know yeah. 
And so there's an adversarial relationship and you don't see a lot of guys that look like you trying to help you out. Pull people out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, my friend Steve that, you know, he wanted to be that example because he's like, you know, the guys that were there for me, uh, you know, there's some, um, some black firefighters that he came in contact with that, you know, through sports and just trying to be a mentor and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, so that's a different way. Well, that's, that's what we need in this world is, is men and women like you that have been there and, you know, yeah, like there's no, I, I think sometimes in, you know, talking with with different people with your background um sometimes there's some shame and you, you alluded to it uh you know if you make it out you don't want to go back yeah um yeah there's what, a level what... of, there's a level of courage that's required you know i mean that's yeah. uh so kudos to you man i i am am pretty blown away like and i'm sorry that i cut you off uh, um please continue <laughs> no i mean you're uh what so now um i mean to, to talk a little bit about you know the the organization i mentioned that the idea started in prison it was during this change i was there was a friend that i was kind of uh became close with and was telling him as i'm going through this epiphany and, and you know in prison uh you know you're not allowed to to cry you know, that, that could bring you harm. You're not, a, you know, being angry can bring you harm. Like regular human emotions, you're not allowed to do. So it's like not a place that you can share like deep emotional things with folks uh, because it's it's actually literally dangerous to do. I got close with, you know, a, a friend that we were able to kind of get to that place. And, you know, I was telling him like, like, uh, this is not it for me. Like, I, you know, I'm going to get out and like, I, I'm going to be a doctor, man. Like that's, that's what, and he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're, you're crazy, man. Do you see where we're at? Do you see that? Like, okay, okay. Um, and then we just continue to have these conversations where I'd share, we we kind of dream about like, how could we change things? And, but it was all kind of fantasy. But then when I got out and I got out a little bit before him and I got into school um, and, and by the way, um, you know, one thing that I, that I didn't mention is um, like as it was time for me to be released, I this with the help of this mentor started putting together these applications because he was encouraging me like you have to continue your education. Um, and I put together just took months and months to put these applications together and just rejection after rejection after rejection. Um, the only place I ended up getting accepted to was St. Louis University where he was on the admissions committee at. So I, I get out and I get into St. Louis University and um, I'm doing very well. I, I actually complete my MBA and PhD in just four years at the top of my class and then move on to Hopkins and some of those other places. But as, I, as I'm getting out and, and going through these things, I'm like telling this friend about like, this is like, this is it. Like this is, you know, this idea of what education can do for you is really the change maker, the transformative change maker. And like, I want to present this to everyone, to other people. And so I, you know, when he got out, I helped him use education as this like tool to help change the way you see the world. Um, 
and and use it as a vehicle to get from A to B is really what we what we saw. And we we started doing that with a couple of people. Um, but then eventually, after we helped a few friends, we had this idea like, man, like what if we can help a whole bunch of people kind of navigate through these hurdles? And because, you know, I was fortunate enough to have this mentor who helped me navigate through the hurdles of like, had I not had him vouching for me on the back end, I would have got rejected from St. Louis University. Just, you know, I, I, I found out in later years that, you know, as they were deciding to accept me, it was him urging the others, his colleagues to give this person a chance that that even got me in. So I, I learned that, like, without having this support system and people in places to really help pull you through some of the hurdles and challenges, it's almost impossible to get through. And so, you know, that's what our organization, we started the organization to do just that, like help people navigate those challenges. Um, and, you know, five years in as like an official 501c3, um, we've now helped, uh, we've now connected with thousands of individuals, uh, over 2000 individuals we, we've connected with, uh, about 300 people have gone through our program, um, which is, which is, you know, we're very excited about that, that number. Um, but we're, we're now in, in 35 states. We have a footprint in 35 states. We connect with people internationally, like our, our next five years, we really see like this exponential growth of this idea that we have of using education over incarceration, using education to combat incarceration, um, and, you know, really, helping people understand that it, it's it's never too late to do good it's never too late to reach your full potential it's never too late to reach your dreams and we've literally just been you know we have astrophysicists in our network we have people that are in law school and medical school phds to people that are working on uh electrical trades and plumbing and construction uh and helping people not just get cdls but start trucking companies to really help them elevate, you know, to that next level of building a career. Um, and it's really exciting. What we we really see ourselves as changing the narrative, like helping society, like we want to help the individual change their narrative and help them rewrite their story. But the real magic will come when we start to help society change their the narrative of what it is, you know, what a person with a, a criminal conviction is capable of. Like, what somebody who was causing all this harm in our society, like if we don't help them see the value that they can bring, they'll just continue causing harm in our society. Like who is, right. who is that helping? Right. Um, so we, we really want to, and, and by the time people are in their thirties and forties, like they don't want to be doing the stuff that they were doing when they were teenagers. Like that's everyone, like every person, no matter if you've been through the criminal legal system, by the time, you know, you age out of that type of thinking. Um, but the unfortunate thing for people with criminal convictions, they know, you know, they don't have the same options and access and opportunities. So they have to continue, you know, not have to, again, uh, you know, that that's not quite the right word, but they're kind of put in this place where doing those same things are, you know, are options that, are used to survive and and you know we we want to help change that perception 
and help society understand that we need to be providing more opportunity for, for folks to help them as they reenter society. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the, the process? Say, you know, say I'm in prison right now and I hear about you guys. What are, how do I get, uh, is there an application process? I mean, how do I yeah. get involved with you? And, so, and then I, I have this, it's going to be a series of questions. Let me get it out before I forget. <laughs> so how do I get involved with you? And then when, when I complete your program, am I able to get involved with you to be a mentor to somebody else? Oh, most definitely. That, that is actually to answer that question first. Uh, that is our, uh, you know, uh, part of our sustainability model almost. Um, so we have, um, we have about 30 team members, paid team members or, or people on staff, uh, and 85% of them are formerly incarcerated and almost, uh, you know, nearly a hundred percent are people that are, that were participants in the program. So we, we hire a lot of our, uh, past scholars is what we call our participants um and nearly a hundred every one of our scholars in the program are assigned a formerly incarcerated mentor and a non-formally incarcerated mentor that um and we make sure that it's paired up on like a career trajectory like one of those two people or both of them are in the career path that the person wants to pursue um and almost 100% of our formerly incarcerated mentors are past scholars. So yes, we we serve, we 100% and we they go through a training process. The program is in itself kind of this uh, process of how to like engage in the work in helping change the narrative. Um, and, and we also do a lot of policy and advocacy work. And that's also another pipeline of people that go through the program. We equip them with the tools on how to share their story and how to help enact change by sharing their story and, and get involved like uh civically engaged and politically engaged and um so yes to that part and then to how they find us it's a number of different ways so we connect with people on the outside so formerly incarcerated people um and that's really through our word of mouth and through our uh networks we're, we're really we've moved into the space where um you know, we're thought of as thought leaders in the field of, um, particularly in the field of higher education in and after prison. So how to promote higher education, what higher education should look like for people in prison. We're kind of seen as as experts in that in that area. So all of these people in the field know about us and they're telling people in their programs about us to because a lot of these providers are non-formally incarcerated people. So a lot of the people like your friend, you know, uh, I think you mentioned you had a friend that taught in high school. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, you didn't tell me if he was incarcerated or formally incarcerated or not, but oftentimes people that go into prisons to teach are not formally incarcerated. Right. Right. Um, and so a lot of those folks, we've now created this space and understanding that like to really be successful with helping someone put their life back together, you need to put them in contact with people who've been through those experiences. So a lot of these people in the space know to contact us 
like when you you need you need a support system for your students to help them get through this thing called reentry and putting your life back together, you need to contact P2P. P2P will help you find that support system on how to put your life back together. So a lot of people find us through our many partners all across the nation um, who are already working inside prisons. And then when their students are getting out, they're like, we don't know how to do this. P2P knows how to do it better than we do. Um, you know, so that's that's one way. Uh, and then for the we're inside six prisons. So, you know, the people inside those six prisons are able to connect with our program through the different outreach that we do within the prison. And, you know, we we generally can accommodate about 50 people at the moment. And that's kind of this idea of like we're we're growing uh, per year, but we we generally have about 400 people apply at one facility throughout the year to like get in. And we have space for about uh, 50 to 60 of those folks. <clears throat> but I, I should uh, I should go ahead and give a shout out to uh, one of our big uh, partner networks. Um, it's called STEM Ops. Uh, it stands for STEM Opportunities in Prison Settings. It's a partnership with Princeton, Vanderbilt, uh, organization called Education Development Center and Operation Restoration. Princeton and Vanderbilt are running like college and prison programming. Um, and so that's was, we got five and a half million dollars from the National Science Foundation to build this network to really promote the idea of STEM education as opposed to just like um, general ed, which is oftentimes what's taught uh, there's this idea that people in prison aren't smart enough for STEM. Um, and just for those of, that might not know what STEM is, science, technology, yes, engineering, uh, and math. Yeah, science, technology, engineering, and math. And, um, you know, STEM is actually, there's the stigma of STEM not being for even, you don't even have to have a criminal conviction for society to tell you that STEM is not for you. So, you know, STEM has always been kind of reserved as this place um, and so we're looking to break that stereotype. Um, and, you know, we've been building this network to help we, uh, you know, fuel this, the job market. There's, you know, there's a big rise in like tech jobs and computer programming jobs. And um, why not fill those with this group of people that are really looking for jobs that have all this talent? Uh, so, we're, we're, you know, we're making that connection. And we're actually building, we actually also got a good amount of funding from National Institutes of Health to build this literal uh, prison to college pipeline where they, you know, they start off in prison, they move to a community college, all paid for, and then they move on to Howard University where I'm a faculty at um, and, you know, paid for as well as getting a stipend. Uh, so we're, we're really excited about some of the, you know, we're literally reversing that school to prison pipeline and creating now this uh, prison to college and STEM pipeline um, and just very excited. And we, we really feel in the next five years that, uh, you know, instead of reaching, uh, we're, we're now reaching about uh, 150 people per year in our program. We really see that exponentially increasing to reaching, uh, you know, over a thousand plus people per year in, in the very near future. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was something that a lot of men shy away from talking about and that's the impact to your mental health 
And, you know, I, I know that there's a level of machismo that, I mean, you have to be quote unquote, like manly when you enter the system or when you're, yeah. when you're working the streets and you're, you know, yeah. you have to convey this presence of like, you better not yeah. mess with me. And yeah. to show any kind of emotion would be other than anger, rage, you know, like that's right. Though That's acceptable emotion. <laughs> but, right. But to, to actually be able to embrace the fact that you're depressed because like you didn't want to be there. Um, right. The, the emotional impact, the mental health aspect of, well, not just going into prison, but what about the environment that you grew up in? And when you're yeah. recognizing that there's people that have a lot more than you, how did they get it? Oh, right. I'll never be able to get that. And here's where I can get something, you know? And, and so I, I feel like there's that other aspect of, well, when you're helping these individuals make that transition and move into, um, yeah. move into higher education do you address any of the the mental oh, health most, that that is actually i mean you've hit that is the number one thing that we really address um like one of the first thing you know the program is really built to help them understand that we are that they're being brought into this family and they have this community of support and in that we really help them understand the idea of letting themselves be vulnerable and like coming to this place of understanding vulnerability and, and opening up and feeling some of the uh like letting yourself feel a lot of times like for me um I had um I can recall uh I, I had actually turned off my ability to cry like in prison like I just did not cry and it was kind of like this thing that I that I turned off um and you know I can recall um I ended up getting this coaching job from this one of my former high school coaches coaching this team, this basketball team for a month. And right before our first game, I walk into the locker room. I missed the coach's call. Um, and he tells me that uh, I've actually been fired and I'm actually uh, they put out a. Um, uh, I, I couldn't be within a certain distance of the students or I'd, I'd get rearrested. Like, so I was actually violating just walking into the locker room. I was violating that. And I, and I had, you know, I had built this like incredible relationship with these kids. And I, I just remember walking back to my car and just like breaking down into tears. And that was like one of the first times that I really like let myself cry since I had gotten out of prison. And um, I, I come to, and, and that's also right around the time that I started to realize like how much emotional and psychological damage prison did to me. I was, um, I was very much unaware that prison had caused so much psychological and emotional damage to me. I thought that I had kind of went through unscathed and it was, that's one of the biggest uh, things that I had this misconception of. So 
um, you know, through my experience and learning, um, we've incorporated that into the program where one of the biggest things is helping people understand the need for healing um, and, you know, the, the need for really understanding and unpacking some of the things that you went through in prison, before prison, after prison. Um, and so it, it is a huge part and it, it's kind of, you know, once we help them understand that there's this process of healing and forgiveness even that they need to give to themselves and possibly others in their lives that, um, you know, took part in some of the trauma, um, that's until they get through, until a per, until I got through that in, in, in our experience, until people get through that, it's just very challenging to like have the internal like mental capacity to be pushing towards your best self um, and, and, and pushing towards a career. So it, it absolutely is one of the key things. And their statistics will say, you know, 75% of people leave prison with some type of psychological um, challenges, um, whether it be minor or, or more severe, uh, you know, PTSD, schizophrenia, and a lot of people enter in prison with some of those challenges. But even if you didn't enter in with them, <laughs> you know, you end up you end up leaving with them. And so not addressing them, there's a big part of our program where we provide mental health, um, provide, you know, connection to mental health providers. Uh, so certainly, is just a huge, huge part of doing this work. I, I've talked about it on the show. Uh, I, I've talked about it quite a bit, actually, and in interviews that I've done um, on other podcasts, other shows where I've referenced ACEs, and I'm certain that you're yeah. aware of it. Um, <clears throat> and I, I've actually got uh, some of the statistics uh, related to the ACE study, and ACE is an acronym for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And, you know, on a scale of one to 10, the higher your score, the more likely oh, yeah. you are to end up in either prison or dead or, you know, have mm -hmm. overdosed Mental on drugs health. or whatever. Physical health, yeah. And, yeah, and th that was uh, how they even came around to realizing uh that there's all these adverse childhood experiences that impact us when we're young is they were studying um you know obese People. children yeah and yeah. so on my website uh hollenbachleadership.com on the resources page i have this um little Thing with all all the uh the statistics and the 10 uh areas that are right. are evaluated the emotional abuse and this is like if you're the person that's you know grading your ace score and you want to learn more about it just ask yourself this have you ever you know as a child experienced emotional abuse physical abuse sexual abuse emotional neglect physical neglect did you witness your mother being battered were you um in, in a family where there was parental separation or divorce was there mental illness in the household you know was one of your siblings or just was there somebody living in your household that had mental illness 
was there substance abuse in the household, whether it's, you know, drunkenness or, you know, drug use, it could be prescription drug use. Um, And then uh, whether or not a a member of your household had been incarcerated. So those 10 things and the higher your score, well, one, the more susceptible you are to other forms of mental illness, diseases, but PTSD. So now when you're entering in to the prison system and the stuff that you experience in there, what you witness. Yeah. I mean, I've interviewed uh, corrections officers that are suffering from PTSD from witnessing things. And um it's incredible, you know, and, and I think a lot of times we forget that as children, you know, we experience things that set us up yeah. to, to view the world through right. a certain lens, you know? I mean, that that's the whole thing is, you know, uh, as I was mentioning with being eight years old and having uh a cop pull a gun on on me and you know just the view the reason that the aces you know one one of the reasons that the aces is is such a uh to have those types of events happen to you in your formative years is is really why the aces are such an impactful thing because your brain is still forming so for me i know that it triggered this thing that said that that i'm a criminal like like having those experiences and being around that environment that resulted in me saying that people around here are are criminals so i guess that includes me too and so you know the the challenge with the with that because if you think about it um like having those experiences are more dangerous to have you know witnessing those things and having those experiences as a child are even more dangerous than you know witnessing them as adult as an adult just for the the way that the brain processes them. And, you know, so that is, of course, you know, it's not as if you experiencing those things as an adult is not going to be traumatic. They still are going to be traumatic, um, but they're even like, they're like life altering, tra- you know, there's just a different level of impact when they're a, a child is experiencing that because their brain doesn't have the capacity to process as, you know, as someone with an uh, adult brain does. So, Dr. Andreas, um, I, w- I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, your book, From Prison Cells to PhD, it is never too late to do good. Um, again, I-, I forget what you told me about uh, it earning you know, bestseller status uh, in what genre? Uh, it was the number one new release in Educator Biographies on Amazon. So you know my my book just released in october and uh i i don't it's a pretty darn good book too so you guys out there need to uh give me some reviews if you would but uh yeah it it's not a bestseller or anything like that so (laughs) maybe yeah not yet maybe maybe I, i can get it but uh you know all the work that you're doing And I love this conversation that we've had because I've interviewed, you know, veterans, mental health professionals, uh, you know, 
corrections officers, police officers, firefighters. And it's, it's one of the things that I've talked about so often is that we're all the same. You know, we all make decisions in our life. We all have the potential to fail or succeed. Yeah. When, when we're pushing ourselves, when we're trying to achieve more, when we're risking a lot, sometimes we lose a lot and, yeah. you know, failing is just part of the journey. It's what we do with that, that, that defines us. You know, if we can allow that experience to refine us, it gives us the ability to offer that hand up to the person behind us that yeah. falls on their face. And what you're doing right now is a per- perfect example of that. And um, man, I just want to thank you for, for all that you're doing, the example that you're setting and um, just love this conversation, man. It, it was, it was great. So I feel honored. Yes. Thank you. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Now for those that are listening, what is the best place for people to connect with you buy your book and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's somebody very wealthy that wants to give you a lot of money to help your cause. <laughs> um, the, uh, your, yeah. your one website that I already put in the show notes is the from prison cells to phd.org. Uh, you mentioned a couple of other websites. Um, yeah, just, um, to find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, you can find us at prison, the number two pro. So at prison to pro. And then uh, my personal handle is at Professor Andres. Uh, that's at P-R-O-F underscore Andres, A-N-D-R-I-S-S-E. Um, and we we have a very strong social media following. We have a, a awesome communications team that we're just pumping out some of our scholar stories and some of the work that we're doing in the field and work that others are doing. So if you really want to get engaged and learn more about this work, certainly follow us. If you really want to be part of the work that we do, we, we have um, over 200 volunteers that really help us connect and do our work. And there's a number of different ways that you can uh, be a part of that. So certainly reach out and, and check us out on social media or our website uh, from prison cells to phd.org. Awesome. And thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.